Today's sermon is going to be a reflection on a parable, but before we get there, I'm going to do a sidebar and a little bit of Bible study. So here we go. First, the sidebar, um, I love Jeremiah. I'm not preaching on Jeremiah this morning, but I cannot let this morning go without saying how much I love Jeremiah. I've been actually reading Jeremiah um, uh, with, with one of you who is preparing for confirmation. So the two of us are reading Jeremiah together. And uh, all I can say is it could be written today. So um, Jeremiah is as relevant today as it was in his own time. So, but I've done enough Jeremiahs in the last few weeks, so I'm going to shift to the gospel. And in order to deal with the gospel, I need to split it up. And this is the Bible study section, because um, we need to understand that a parable is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a koan or a paradox. Uh, The Eastern uh, religions have these sort of art forms of spiritual teachings that are meant to be perplexing. They're supposed to be perplexing. And in that perplexity, um, it's the mechanism to spur your thinking into a a different realm, a different way of thinking about life, the universe, meaning, and whatever the subject is. Um, uh, and, And sometimes you need to be a certain age or place in life or set of life experiences before you really understand what that parable is about or that that koan or paradox um, I remember as a teenager learning the Buddhist paradox, um, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And I remember Bart Simpson's answer to that, which was, <laughs> sounds like that, right? Which is spectacularly missing the point. That's one of the sound of one hand clapping. It's an image. How do you clap? You know, you need two hands. What are we trying to get at? What about life is doing that? The, another one that blew my mind was, if you meet the Buddha on the path, kill him. Today, I know what that means. I know that today, but I couldn't have known it before, you know, a few years back. So parables are the same thing. They are meant to be perplexing. They're meant to be weird. They're meant to not make sense because Jesus is engaging in that ancient Near Eastern art form to teach spirituality, which is what he came to do. Now, the other thing you need to know is that the Greeks didn't get it. And our New Testament is filtered through a Greek lens. And so we have Greek editors, certainly Greek thinking editors, even if they have Hebrew connections. And so today it's Luke. um, And the final editor in this section just lumped together a whole bunch of sayings about wealth, which don't necessarily have anything to do with each other and are certainly not part of the parable. So I'm going to talk about the dishonest manager, but in order to do that, we have to figure out where the parable ends, where to cut the, the, the pericope, as it's called. Right? And the other things are other sayings that have their own meaning. So you cannot serve God and mammon. That's another great sidebar which I will indulge myself in. I apologize. I, I couldn't find it quickly enough on my phone, which is why I was grabbing for it. When I was in seminary, there was a satirical advertisement which I loved. And it had a, an earnest looking business type man making this gesture into the picture. And it said, I need a belief system that serves my needs right away. And it says, Dean Sachs had a mortgage, a family, and a whole list of demands. What he, what he did not need was a religion with an impossible list of expectations. Um, so our, at, here at Mammon, our, uh, our ability to deliver is unique, and our moral flexibility is unmatchable. Mammon, because you deserve to enjoy life. We may not be the biggest player in the spiritual market, but our moral flexibility is unmatchable. So uh, it's a great little satirical 
ad, it could go in a business magazine. It was professionally done. I've carried it with me to this day. Um, and you cannot serve God and mammon. That's a, that, that is the best sermon on that little element of today's gospel, which I share with you. You can do with that what you will. Not my point today. We're done the sidebars. On to the main event. The parable of the dishonest manager is perplexing. It's supposed to be perplexing. You read it and you go, what the heck? What kind of owner would be happy with someone that continued to squander, which is why this guy was being fired. Uh, He was squandering the assets. He continued to squander it by writing down the debts of the master's debtors, and then the master commends him. That's the end of the story. And the master commended the dishonest manager, period. And then the stuff after that are Greek speakers' explanations and interpretations. And so I think, for the most part, we tend to set those aside, that that was an interpretation for the Greek-speaking world, um, but I don't think it does justice to the art form. The art form needs to sit in all of its perplexity and bother us and force us to think about what the heck is Jesus trying to teach us? Why would Jesus give us this story about a manager who is obviously a dishonest, selfish person He doesn't change his character. There's no aha moment where he becomes enlightened. He just continues being himself. And at the end of the story, the master commends him. So I, because parables are not reducible to a single interpretation, that's a Greek mistake, by the way, to say, here's what the parable means. That's the mistake. The parable can mean that to you, but it's deeper than that. It's a way of, it's a perspective. It's a way of thinking about things. It's meant to stay with you and unlock other insights as your life goes along, like when you meet the Buddha on the path. So the, um, the Greek interpretation of make friends for yourself with dishonest wealth so that, you know, that's, that's a Greek interpretation which the later Christian community said that's what this means because Jesus couldn't have meant it just the way he said it, could he? That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, I believe he did mean it exactly as he said it because it matches all the other parables that don't make sense. Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He is raising the, the spiritual level of the hearers in the, the, using the art forms of the day. So, what can the parable of the dishonest manager possibly mean? And I have two thoughts, and they are just my interpretations. These are not the interpretations. These are just me working with the parable, and I've come up with two possible thoughts that the parable has, for which the parable has been the springboard, which is what I'm trying to share with you. This, the parable may be a springboard for you into another set of insights that is totally legitimate. Your life experience is different than mine. Your perspective is different than mine. The teaching of the parable may be different for you than it is for me. But for the sake of... Um, sharing the two things that come to my mind. The first one is, um, the, the, is in line with all the other teachings Jesus made about the kingdom of God, where the kingdom of God doesn't work by the same rules as other things that you think you know. Um, the last shall be first. You know, Up is down, backwards is forwards. Everything is upside down from what you know. And this is a consistent theme of Jesus' teaching. And so in this version of Jesus' teaching, the, the kingdom, the currency in the kingdom of God doesn't behave like normal financial currency. So that the act of forgiving of debts is kind of the purpose of the currency in the kingdom of God. In a way, it's not if it's just a money manager managing assets. An asset manager needs to minimize expenses and maximize returns. That's simple. The asset manager was failing. He was being fired. And so he continued to fail. But 
inadvertently stumbled into the assets of the kingdom. And usually the owner or the father in these parables is something to do with God. And so if God is occupying the position of the owner here and God is commending the manager for stumbling into the kingdom of God, the teaching has something to do with debt forgiveness being the currency of the kingdom as opposed to debt collection. And here I think of the Pharisees and others in Jesus' time who were very interested in telling their uh, fellow countrymen uh, what they owed God, the, the covenant and the agreements and the, the purity demands of the law, and you have to hang out with pure people and do pure things and avoid the impure people and avoid the impure things and, and, and hold yourself up to the standard that is written for us in the law and the commandments. And Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and saying, God loves you. And yes, tax collecting and sinning is not necessarily a good thing, but you are beloved and your sin does not come between God's love for you and you. And so we, so Jesus was out about forgiving sins. Go, your sins are forgiven, right? Well, who is he to say your sins are forgiven? Well, if I said, take up your mat and walk, would you believe me? Fine, take up your mat and walk, right? And so this, this constant theme of God not holding his chosen people to that standard and punishing them whenever they fall short so their only option is to try harder, Jesus came to say, no, there's this grace, there's this other side to, to God's relationship with humanity that is built on grace, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of debts. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, some translations of the Lord's Prayer, which talk about forgive us our debts as we forget, give our debtors. And so we have the dishonest manager stumbling into grace. Um, And he has actually acted in a way that the true master would act, which is that the the debts are real, but they can be forgiven. And if the manager is trying to forgive them in order to build relationship between himself and the debtors, then to forgive debts in order to build relationship has something more to do with the kingdom than collecting the debts and maximizing the return on profit. So there's one thought about how that parable may make sense, certainly in Jesus' time and also in ours, because, of course, I'm a Pharisee. I, you know, I'm, in, in all these stories, I see myself as the religious professional that needs to listen to Jesus because we're usually getting it wrong. Um, so the forgiveness of debts, the grace, the love, the, the unconditional acceptance and, um, and, and love for all people um, goes hand in hand with the high moral standards and the expectations and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Those two live together, not one or the other. The second point is something that I learned from a friend who's sort of a business guy. And, um, and I, I hope I do this anecdote justice. It comes from my personal life, and it comes from a time when we had stayed in a hotel, and I saw for the first time a little, um, a little cardboard sign saying, we believe in being green, so we're not going to wash the linens or the towels unless you indicate you want them to be washed. So if you've hung them up on the rack to dry, we will leave them alone. But if you throw them in the tub or on the floor, we will wash them. And that way, because we are a green company. And I went, oh yeah, you're a green company. You're saving a bunch of money um, and you're charging us the same amount of money. And so this is just green washing. Way to go, guys. And I was quite indignant about this, and I told my friend about this greenwashing. You wouldn't believe this nonsense, this corporate performative morality that I've just encountered. And my dear friend said, Chris, you are so wrong. 
um, you're so wrong. It's good that they can make a profit and be green because then they're going to be greener then if they have to suffer in order to be green, if their bottom line has to suffer, they're not going to do it. So isn't it a good thing that they found a way to be better for the planet and make money so they don't have to be pure in order to make the world a better place? And that was offensive to me because my puritanical instincts were offended. And what does it say about me endorsing this nonsense? And in fact, that's, it took me a good six months for me to agree that my friend was in fact right because he was wrong in that conversation, let me tell you. And I told him so and I told him why. Um, but six months later, I went, you know, I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> it takes a while for the truth to sink in sometime. And, and so the parable about the dishonest manners here, still staying dishonest and yet stumbling into the kingdom of God has something to do with that anecdote in my mind, that there is something about a puritanical streak amongst Christians and others of goodwill that want the world to be at a better place, but it's got to be perfect. And if there's any tiny flaw in whatever is being done that is making the world better, then we'll be the first to jump on it and say, yeah, but. Um, Instead of celebrating the fact that it may not be perfect, but it's a step towards the kingdom of God, and isn't that a good thing? Yes, there's always more work to be done, but can we start by saying, way to go, Amazon. You know, you may have a way to go in your approach to the kingdom, but that thing is a good thing. And if you made it profitable, good for you. That packaging change, well done. Well done to you, right? Um, And so even though it grates, because there are so many things that are wrong about these giant companies and so forth, and you would never want to be seen in public endorsing Amazon, um, but but that's, that's the parable working on me, saying, do I, does the manager have to be 100% right with God before he can enter the kingdom of God? Well, maybe not. Maybe I'm just being pharisaical again. And so those are my two thoughts about the parable. It may uh, spark more thoughts for you, but the key to the parable is you stop at the, manage, at the, the master commended the dishonest manager for what he had done, period. And then you can think about why that might be. Why someone that is just trying to make a life for himself um, and scramble in, in, it has somehow stumbled into something that was praiseworthy. And I leave that to our communal reflections. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.